It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Baseball is back. Sort of. I mean, not, not really. Uh, a bunch of guys are having a catch in Florida. But you know what? It's a national holiday. It's pitchers and catchers reporting. Welcome to the first Rico Bronia where there are Met baseball players, mostly pitchers and catchers, really everybody, having a catch in sunny Florida. And I do think one of the the cool things about pitchers and catchers reporting is not necessarily that guys are working out, not necessarily that guys are having bullpen sessions, but I do think it's cool to hear from the guys. You know, I I listen to every second of Buck Showalter's press conference from Tuesday, and I devoured it. You know, I listened to every second of Pete Alonzo meeting the media on Wednesday, and I devoured it. And it was just cool to hear from them. Max Scherzer, Justin Verlander, most of the guys. So this is going to be a long month and a half. Let's not kid ourselves. The excitement of pitchers and catchers reporting will rub off in a few days. The excitement of the first spring training game, which is a week from Saturday, will rub off in like four innings. And then we all start to get that itch for opening day. And we still have a while. Now, let's not kid ourselves. It's the middle of February. You know, opening day. Uh, we still got a while. We still have a month and a half. But happy pitchers and catchers to everybody out there. Uh, we will discuss the 86 rewatch a little bit later on in the podcast. There were a lot of emails, a lot of feedback, a lot of thoughts about that game. So we will get to that. We'll save that for the end of the pod. So if you're not interested in the current Mets, you can fast forward the next how many minutes and get right to the end when we talk about the rewatch of Game 7 of the 86 World Series. So there's a lot to devour. Again, I listen every second of what Buck said, of what Max said, Pete Alonso said. Let me start off. I'm not saying this is a headline, but it's something that did jump out at me, and I think it probably jumped out a lot of people. And it actually came from Max Scherzer. And it's when Max said, I want to pitch 200 innings. I want to go out there and I want to pitch every five days. I don't want extra rest. I want to pitch. That's my goal going into a season. He did also say that he'll do what's best for the team. He did throw that in there. So it wasn't simply, this is what I'm going to do. Shut the F up. He did have that caveat of, I want to do what's best for the team. Uh, I think this is an interesting issue for all of us. And this is not me bringing up the Nets. I'm going to bring up the NBA. We all get really upset with load management. We don't like it. Most people don't like it. There was a basketball game the other night between the Boston Celtics and the Milwaukee Bucks. Jason Tatum didn't play. Jalen Brown didn't play. uh, Al Horford didn't play. A lot of guys didn't play. And the reason for a a lot of those guys not playing was load management. And it's become a big issue in the NBA. I've always been a defender of teams resting guys with the, with the thought being, Hey, I'm just doing what's best to win a championship over the course of an 82 82 game regular season. I don't look at every regular season game as a necessity. I need guys to be fresh for April, May, and June. This isn't an NBA podcast, but major league baseball slowly, but surely is getting closer to the NBA. And I give you an example. We as Met fans fully expect to be in the postseason. Yankee fans fully expect to be in the postseason. We saw Max Scherzer last year during the regular season when he was healthy, and 
he pitched a majority of the season, missed a chunk of time, but still went out there, pitched in April and May and June, came back. He was great. He was great. I, I can't say a bad thing about what he did when he pitched over those 23 starts and 145 innings. He had a 2-2-9 ERA. He had the lowest ERA of his career. But when it mattered the most, Max Scherzer sucked. When it mattered in Atlanta, he wasn't good. When it mattered at City Field against the Padres, he was getting booed off the mound. I'm not telling you he struggled because he pitched too much. No, I can't claim that. He only threw 145 innings. But we define seasons now based on what happens in October. And the fact that we now have six teams making the postseason, eight really make the postseason in the NBA, we ain't that far off. We're not. So I declare to you an opinion of mine that's evolved. And it's evolved because baseball's evolved. I haven't changed. They changed. I don't want Max Scherzer throwing 200 innings. Period. Stop. I don't. I'm not going to scream. I promise you. Hoff will call me out if I do. On pulling Max too early in the seventh inning of a game in May. I used to. I used to bitch about that stuff all the time. But the truth is, there's a bigger picture now. And with six teams making the postseason and Max being a freaking fossil at 38 years old, 39 in late July, and Verlander, who is a part of this discussion too, but I'm talking about Max specifically because he's the one who opened his mouth. I don't want him to pitch 200 innings. I don't want him to throw 115 pitches in a given start because the priority is October. I want him to miss a start here and there, not because of injury, but because of Buck making a decision, hey, we got to keep him fresh. So you may not like this term. You may scream at your radio or your phone right now and say, Evan, it's not the same. But I'll say it anyway. I'm a fan of load management. We hate it in the NBA. It's a curse word. But in Major League Baseball, is it? So Hoff, where am I wrong? So I hate to say this because I like to sometimes be the devil's advocate, but I'm actually fully on board with this. Uh, it makes so much sense, especially with the the bullpen that the Mets currently have right now. And we'll get to another piece that they're kind of looking at right now. Maybe they'll bring them in. Who knows? I, I was thinking about the, today, like we heard the, the, new, the news about the Grom. He's sitting already, and it's like, oh, the memories in the DeGrom already. I'm thinking, how many starts do we see DeGrom or Scherzer or Verlander realistically having? I'm saying to myself, you know what? Like, if they each hit about 25 starts this season, I'll be happy. I'll be fine with that. That, to me, is totally fine. And I know that means that they'll maybe miss more than just one or two starts. That's a lot more. But I'm okay with it because the main goal, like you said, is the playoffs. And this is where we're at now. The expectations and Cohen, which we'll talk about in a few minutes too. Cohen has made a point of in year three, four, five, there needs to be a World Series. So the expectations are not just, oh, well, hopefully we'll get to the playoffs. No, the expectations are higher than that. And look, the truth is if the Mets aren't as good as we think and the Mets are in a dogfight to make the postseason – Obviously, come August, come September, our views are going to change. Then it's balls to the wall, push the guy out there, pitch every five days, throw 115 pitches because you need to win. Obviously, the way a season goes can change that. I don't think there's any question, but coming into a season in which the expectations are through the roof, 
I think you've got to play the long game. And, you know, Max said something about wanting to pitch every five days. Just to give you a fair breakdown of last year, on four days rest, which is your normal five-day rotation, he made nine starts, okay? With one extra day of rest, he made 10 starts. With two extra days or more of rest, he made four starts. So 14 of his 23 starts came with an extra day. So it's not as if he was pitching every fifth day the majority of the time. And by the way, his numbers were basically identical in all those situations. So there's no breakdown of he was better here, he was better there. Max Scherzer is a pro. He's going to be great no matter when you pitch him. Or he's going to struggle no matter when you pitch him, I guess. But he's a, he's a great pitcher. So I don't think giving him an extra day affects him in any kind of negative way. And this is where, and I don't think Buck's going to do it, but I, I'm a believer in a six-man rotation. I think it solves this issue of, you know, keeping Max's workload limited and keeping Justin's uh, workload limited. I'll give you an example. If you're healthy and you make every start every five days, you would make 33 starts in a given season. So a healthy season now, if you're a starting pitcher, is either 32 or 33 starts. If you have a six-man rotation and you're making your starts, right? You're not skipping any. You're making every start every six days. That number is 27. And wouldn't we all agree 27 feels like a good number? And let's say you pitch six innings in those 27 starts. That's 162 innings, which, again, very reasonable. If you're pitching seven innings in those starts, you're at 189 innings. Again, not quite 200 like Max's goal, but reasonable. So when you think about the amount of starts the guys would make, when you think about the amount of innings they would throw, without even saying, hey, I'm going to skip your turn here, I'm going to skip your turn there, you wouldn't even have to. Assuming a guy is healthy for an entire season, which I know is tough to do, especially with Scherzer, because as much as DeGrom gets the bad rap of missing time, Max has missed time. You know, he's had a couple of years in which he, not a lot of time, not nearly on the level of DeGrom, by the way, but he's missed time here and there. You know, he misses a couple of starts like he did in 2019, where he made those 27 starts and 172 innings that I basically described. So I know Max doesn't like it because he said he wants to pitch every five days. And I I know I'm kind of saying something into the wind because it's not going to happen. I don't believe Buck Showalter is going to do it. But I am a believer in a six-man rotation. I think it makes the workload manageable. I think it'll help Kodai Senga in a major way, considering that's the rotation in Japan. So you're benefiting a third guy in all of this. And it also allows an opportunity for a David Peterson or Tyler Miguel or whoever you're thinking of, Joey Lucchese, whoever you'd want that sixth guy to be, to be in the rotation. Now, I'm not naive enough to not assume someone's going to get hurt. And if someone gets hurt, maybe that changes. Maybe it goes back to a five-man rotation. But if this team is healthy, going into opening day, I still think it's the best plan because it allows Scherzer and Verlander an extra day every time out there. If you even want to push them just a tiny bit more because they have an extra day, do it. I just think it would do so much good for this rotation, even though it sounds like it's something Max Scherzer would despise. Well, I mean, you talk about a Cy Young Award winner last year in Justin Verlander, pitched 28 starts. Yeah. How many how many is he pitch? 175. Yep. 185 strikeouts and he was the best season of his career ERA wise. So I mean it it's almost like 
if these guys are that good and they're going to be continue to be that good, you might as well go that route. And, and by the way, just one thing about Verlander, and I can't say this is the reason, but you just mentioned the season that he had. He had a great year last year, won the Cy Young, but they kept his innings and starts limited. In the postseason, he was bad. He he just was. Remember that first start he made against the Mariners? He gave up six runs in four innings. The Astros made a great comeback and made it moot. He pitched great against the Yankees, but that doesn't count. He's the Yankees' daddy, so we kind of throw that one out. And obviously, look at the World Series where he was up and down. So why did Justin Verlander, in four postseason starts, three of the four was either bad or mediocre? Why'd that happen? Now, is it related to he's coming off Tommy John, he threw 170 innings, I would lean more towards that than the moment being too big for him because obviously the moment's not too big for him. He's had fine moments in the postseason. So when you look at the way Verlander pitched in the postseason for the Astros, the way Scherzer pitched in the postseason for the Mets, an year in which he didn't have a full workload but was hurt at the end of the year, isn't that more of a reason to be as careful as you can with them? Oh, no question. And again, you're talking about a team where our expectations are we're going to be in the playoffs anyway. So it's like, I don't need to put any, let's say extra pressure. It's not extra pressure, but there's no need to put us in a situation where we're going to extend somebody a little bit too much where it's going to cause them not to be available in a big spot. Because that's the nightmare scenario. I mean, this team, even though Verlander is not the Grom, this team's strength, the thing that makes the Mets special at least on paper, is a one-two punch of starters and aces and future Hall of Famers. That's what makes them special. I remember us screaming about that at the end of last year, that that's supposed to be the difference. And you want to be able to take advantage of it. By the way, to be fair with Verlander, because I gave you Scherzer's breakdown on how often he pitched with extra days, with Verlander, he rarely pitched on regular rest. Rarely. So he made 28 starts. Only five of them were on regular rest. Only five the entire season. Again, coming off Tommy John surgery, I should point out, though, in those five starts on regular rest, <laughs> he was 3-0 and with a 0.90 ERA. So he was pretty good. But he made 16 starts on exactly five days rest, which is what a six-man rotation would look like. He was nine and three, two four seven ERA, and then with an extra day and like two extra days, he made seven starts, zero point six three ERA, even better than his numbers on regular rest. So I think the conclusion out of this is they're fine no matter what. But Verlander more times than not, Pete pitched with an extra day of rest. It's amazing. It's amazing, but it's just, it's smart. It's you have an asset. And you want to make sure that he's there at the end of the season. And that's the main goal. We we continue to talk about that now. And that's going to be the conversation all season long is get me to the playoffs. Yeah, no doubt. And obviously that could change. If the Mets are having a mediocre season and we're sitting here in June and the playoffs aren't guaranteed, it's very, very different. Much like in the NBA. If you have a team in which you're maintenancing guys, but all of a sudden, uh-oh, we may not make the real playoffs, you throw the maintenance crap out the window. So cards subject to change. As Vince McMahon would say. Uh, the other <laughs> thing about Verlander and Scherzer, after they were meeting the media, the opening day question was brought up. It was also brought up to Buck. We'll address that. I think it was Scherzer who said this. And if it was Verlander, I apologize. One of them said, in terms of starting opening day, quote, 
I didn't come here to start opening day, which was a good answer. Basically, that's not why I'm here. And I'm going to respect the decision of the manager. The manager books good with these press conferences. He also plays the media like a fiddle because he he tries to be a stand-up comedian. And sometimes he's funny. And sometimes it's like, all right, book, just, you know, shut up. All right. Just, just talk baseball. Your mispronunciation of Chipotle. Yeah. Not that funny. I'm sorry. <laughs> but a lot of times he is funny and I love Buck. So don't take this as me hating on Buck. All right. Buck's great. But Buck was honest that in the past, there have been guys who've been bothered about not getting the opening day start. He doesn't expect it to be a problem. He's talked to both guys. He had a smile in which he said, maybe our decision will surprise you. He did kind of point that out. Uh, There is the idea. I think you brought this up, actually, Pete, on the Rico a few weeks ago when we talked about Max and Justin, that one of your options is to give one of them the regular opening day and the other one the home opener. The Mets are in a weird but cool spot, and Buck loves it. He talked about it a lot on his own during the press conference, where they're opening the season with seven straight games. But it guaranteed seven straight games because the games are on the road in the dome. So there's no risk of a rainout. There's no... Because early in the season, there's always a ton of rainouts. And so your schedule gets effed up. Your rotation gets effed up. You can plan it, and then the weather gods laugh at you because you really can't plan it. Barring, as Buck said, a hole in the roof or a UFO invades South Florida, we shoot it down and claim it's a balloon. I'm not saying that's the case. Uh, They're going to play seven straight games. They're going to play four in Miami. They're going to play three in Milwaukee. So... You got, I mean, everybody's pitching. Like, there's no extra day. We'll move guys around, which again is even more of a reason, at least at a camp, to come out with a six man rotation. I don't want to harp on this forever, but I do think it's a good idea because think about it right out of the gate. There's no extra day of rest. More times than not, coming out of the gate, everybody's got an extra day of rest because there's that built in off day usually after opening day. There are rainouts. There's just off days, regular scheduled off days. The Mets aren't going to have that until they get back because they're playing seven straight games before they finally start to get off days. So I'd go six-man rotation right out of the bat and have whoever started the first game pitch the finale in Milwaukee, and then obviously whoever pitched the second game open up at City. If that's not what Buck does, if you want to have one pitch the home opener, one pitch the season opener, you'd have to put the second guy in game three. So you'd be splitting up Verlander and Scherzer, which fine. Like I I always thought that was overrated about guys pitching in order. Oh, I want to break up the lefties or I want to have a soft tosser after a hard thrower. I really don't think that matters. I don't. I, I don't think in this day and age it matters with as much film and the iPads and people studying pitchers. I don't think it's like screwing up your timing one game to another, but If that's important and that's how you have to manage egos and that's a big part of managing a baseball team and you can say to Justin Verlander, hey, Justin, Max is getting the season opener, but you know what you're getting? You're getting a standing ovation at City Field when you start the city opener. I think that's a great compromise. So I think you said it a few weeks ago, so I give you credit, Pete. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And he will because he listens to the podcast. You don't understand this. He, the, <laughs> the podcast is so big now that that buck is listening. But the one thing I will say is, and I don't want to do it, and it's so early in the season, and I don't think that Buck's going to sit there and strategize this way. But if you're starting with your best pitcher, 
Alcantara is going to get the start for for Miami. We we pretty much clearly that's that that makes the most sense, right? Yeah, of course. You're probably going to wind up against Milwaukee's five, and then if they have a five man rotation, one two. Does that go into Buck's mind frame of we're going to give our stud? We're going to try to match up our pitches there to their one two as well. No. Not, not is, it to too early see, is it too early in the season for that? I don't like doing that in general anyway, Pete, because I like to say if you've got an ace, I'm going to throw my ace at right at him and I'm going to beat him. Like I, I don't like the idea of, ooh, let's put our fourth starter against their ace because it's going to be tough to win, and then we'll have a greater starting pitching edge the following day. I, I, I think during the regular season, for the most part, I throw my rotation out there. You know, you're going to face some pretty good pitchers right out of the gate. Usually teams – Best pitchers are pitching early, obviously. So I wouldn't look at it that way. I would look at more look at it more as where do I want guys pitching? You know, maybe you have a preference to having one guy pitch in Milwaukee versus Miami or vice versa, or more starts at home, or I don't know. Like Senga, I could see wanting to get two starts in on that road trip before coming back to City Field. Why you ask? Because of the weather control that you have playing in Miami and Milwaukee. Do you want Kode Senga's second major league start in the United States to be in 45-degree weather, potentially? I mean, that's on the table. Now, he's going to make a start at City Field. It's going to be his third start of the year, at least. I'm not saying you could avoid it forever, but I could see, hey, you know what? Let's have this guy who's pitched in domes a lot in his career pitch in two domes right out of the gate. Like I could see something like that. But I wouldn't overthink who I'm facing. I wouldn't think that. By the way, speaking of the Brewers, who the Mets are facing, what they pulled with Corbin Burns is embarrassing. So if you're not aware of this, they went to arbitration. Corbin Burns, who's won a Cy Young, asked for $10.7 million. The Brewers offered $10.1. And it literally went to a case, to a trial, essentially. And so here are the Brewers sitting there arguing against Corbin Burns. Basically explaining why he doesn't deserve $10.7 million. As I saw one guy on Twitter describe it, passingly, so I don't follow the guy and I forget his name. The Brewers were arguing that a guy who's won the Cy Young shouldn't make a fifth of what Aaron Judge makes. And so I'm not saying hand out free money, but be smart. Don't have a fight with a guy that I assume you're going to want to have on your team long term. Don't insult him over essentially $600,000. Stupid. Speaking of which, and we'll get back to Buck and everything he said, Pete Alonzo. Pete Alonzo, I thought, handled the contract question brilliantly. Because I know as an interviewer, there are certain things you could say to me that are going to disarm me. For example, if you look at me, or say it over the phone, I guess, that makes me feel uncomfortable. Well, I mean, what the hell am I going to do? You just told me it makes you feel uncomfortable. I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable. Now, there are times in which you're making someone feel uncomfortable with an interview, but they're not telling you you're making them feel uncomfortable. So when Pete Alonzo's asked, hey, Jeff McNeil got his contract. What about you? Pete starts off by saying, I'm happy for Jeff. I love the Mets. Talking about my contract makes me feel uncomfortable, which, by the way, totally fair. Who wants to sit here talking about how much money they're being, or they're, they're being paid? 
Like, I don't sit here talking about my contract negotiations with WFAN. I don't sit in here and say, well, here's what they're paying me. Here's what I want. Like, it is uncomfortable. So I, I, I agree with Pete. And he, he pretty much disarmed everybody by saying that. And look, anything he says to the media is irrelevant in terms of his negotiation or his agent's negotiation. I think that anytime you allow a guy to get to free agency, and Pete is still two years away, so it's not as if we're one year away, you run a risk. You really do. We saw it with DeGrom. We saw it with Freddie Freeman with Atlanta. You see it a lot. Freddie Freeman, I think, is the best example. Forget DeGrom. Freddie Freeman, no one could have imagined leaving the Atlanta Braves. And we still don't know what happened. We still don't have any idea what happened. So when you allow a guy to get to free agency, and we almost saw it with Aaron Judge, he came oh so close of becoming arson judge and signing with the San Francisco Giants. So I'm not telling you, hey, if Pete gets to free agency, he's definitely gone, but it's risky. It's just, it's a risky proposition. So I'd rather them work something out with him long-term. I don't know where they are in negotiations. I just think the Pete contract is a lot more complicated than the McNeil contract because we're talking about a lot more money and a lot more years. And I don't blame Pete for saying, hey, it starts at 250. I don't blame him for saying that. And and maybe his agent's going to tell him, Pete, I know you want to be in New York. You have been healthy your entire career. You hit a crop load of home runs in a really good year last year. I think it's going to benefit you to not sign. And as much as you want to be a Met, you will do better financially if you go out and play 150 games this year, 150 games next year, hit 40 home runs each year, and get there to be a bidding war, and confidence Steve will take care of you. No worries. You'll be back with the Mets. But it's tough to demand or get that kind of money when you don't have the control of negotiating with other teams. I'm not that confident that Alonzo deal is going to get done because, again, I'm factoring in what his agent's telling him. I think the Mets should be proactive, and I'm sure they are, but they're only going to do it at their price. Not going to hand them a dumb contract. So I don't know what's going to happen, but Pete certainly disarmed us by saying it's uncomfortable for him. Well, you just made me feel uncomfortable. Why? Because you just said he's going to hit free agency and he's going to demand them a lot of money. And who's to say that the that Steve Cohen's going to go out there and match that because he needs to make a smart business decision. If he's smart, Steve Cohen, who knows what he's going to do next offseason? If by the time Pete Alonso gets to the free agency and we have so many contracts out there, listen, again, money seems to be no problem to Steve Cohen, but that doesn't mean he's just going to go above and beyond to sign everybody. Agreed. Agreed. I agree with you. So that to me, and it's not to like start to be panic mode and anxiety, like, oh, shit, here we go. We're going to lose another guy. But to see Pete Alonso, listen, I, w- I want Pete Alonso to be a Met for life. We wanted Jake the- Jacob DeGrom to be a Met for life. Clearly, things happen in life. But you see Pete Alonso, he screams New York Mets. He's done everything right. If for some reason he goes out there and the Mets are like, you know what? We're fine without you. That would sting a little bit. It really of would. Course, of course it would. I mean, I'm not telling you that it wouldn't suck and it wouldn't worry me if he got to free agency. I'm just trying to analyze this fairly. I, I could understand why more from Pete's end of things, his agent and him say, I'm not going to get the kind of deal I want when I don't have the leverage of free agency. Jeff McNeil did not get some kind of magical contract. Brandon Nimmo wasn't going to get that contract from the Mets a year ago at this time. It wasn't. He benefited from not only having a really good walk year, but getting a free agency. So 
it's a it's a dance that goes two ways is all I'm saying, Pete. It's not the Mets just simply deciding, Pete, you're back. You have to convince him to come back, and you have to do that with a lot of money and a lot of years. And I don't know if they're going to be willing to do it until they're threatened by somebody else like they were with Nimmo. Did they reach an agreement with arbitration, or did they have to go for an arbiter at all? At made this a deal. With him? They did. They made a deal. And next year is going to be the same thing. It, that will be a tell as well. If they keep on making those, you know, not go, coming to a deal before having to go to an arbiter. Because there's no reason to do it for, for I'm sorry, but when you're talking about like $0.5 million, right. you're talking about, there's and, no reason to sit there and go to the arbiter. And Pete talked about it uh, the other day when he was meeting the media on Wednesday, that he has a record amount of money for a first baseman in arbitration. I think it passed Ryan Howard. He talked about how great that is for the future generation, which he's right. You know, you make this money sometimes. Yeah, you get it. and It's great. But you're also setting the bar for the guys after you. I'm not worried. We're, we're two years away from free agency. Two, this isn't Aaron Judge. Aaron Judge was one year away. Yeah, but you agency. said it, dude. You're the one who brought it up. Well, I'm bringing up the fact that I, I don't <laughs> think it's a lock that there's a long-term contract anytime soon. Think about this, Pete. Shohei Otani will pick his team a year before Pete Alonso gets the free agency. Oh my god, dude! Think this about is, that. We, as far we, as oh my god, as, you were talking about free agency already. I, I, I'm not. I'm just saying. Pete was asked about it, and hopefully, he's never asked about it again because it's two years from now. What are we going to do? We're going to ask him about his contract all the time. Plus, it makes him uncomfortable, and we don't want Mister LFGM to be uncomfortable. He's our guy. He is our guy. (laughs) Uh, A couple of things from Buck. He is a stream of conscious kind of guy. He gave so many freaking opinions on the state of baseball that it made me laugh. Number one, he loves the new schedule. He's tired of playing the same people. He's tired of playing division rivals 19 times. I'm mixed about that. I'm open-minded about the new schedule. We're going to do a podcast coming up that really dives into the schedule. The tough parts, the easy parts, the differences in it, road trips you may want to go on. We'll do that coming up real soon. I don't know yet if I like it or not. On the surface, I don't because I'm a traditionalist. But I'm also open-minded enough to know that maybe when we go through a full season, and it's not 19 games against the Marlins and 19 games against the Braves, and you are playing everybody in baseball, I'm open-minded enough to say I think there's a chance that by the end of the year I say, yeah, that's pretty cool. The other thing he said, and I've heard managers mention this, When asked about last year and the disappointment of last year, he also went out of his way to not say they lost the division. He went out of his way to say they tied for the division and lost some tiebreaker. (laughs) It's the way you worded it. Buck, the tiebreaker you lost was head-to-head. And you lost that head-to-head by getting swept by the freaking Atlanta Braves in Atlanta. So I'm all for, hey, they finished with the same record. They really didn't, though, because the division was over. That those final three games were like freaking exhibitions. And they lost one of those games uh, to Miami, didn't they? The the Braves. So they didn't finish with the same record. I know they did, but they didn't, if we're being fair. But he went on to say, concerning losing a best of three, and, you know, the the crapshoot of it, that he thinks every playoff series should be best of seven and should be played with no off days. And, And I totally get what he's saying. He's basically saying, look, best of three, best of five is not a fair way to determine the better team. 
And that's, uh, of course, no one disagrees with that. But that doesn't mean we should change the format. The playoffs are the playoffs. They're crazy. And they're wild. And anything can happen. And the reward is win your freaking division, finish with a top two record, and then you don't have to worry about best of three. You got to worry about best of five. And the other thing is, I get why you don't want any off days. You don't want any off days because you want it to be a five-man rotation like the regular season. But if Verlander and Scherzer are Verlander and Scherzer, you will benefit more than anybody else by there being off days so you could potentially, in a best-of-five series, throw Verlander and Scherzer in four of five games, potentially, if you're willing to pitch somebody on short rest. So the non-off day thing probably benefits the Mets, but I've heard managers say that before. Here's the problem, though, and I see where Buck's coming from because we just talked about the expectations is we're going to make the playoffs, right? I think in the back of Buck's head, the division is nice, but the the pressure to get that division means you got to grind out the entire season. To not worry about that and just play – play out the season and make the playoffs, you don't have to grind it out and you don't have, there's not going to be as much pressure on the team so that when you do get to the playoffs, it is that, that free and you can play your team. You know, I understand the reward of being the division and, and getting that first round by, but he, he's making the point that the division means too much, which it should, but he doesn't want to play that game. And, and Mets fans, I got to be honest. I, I can see it already that the division may not be ours again. And, I think Buck's okay with that. So I think what last year proved in the National League with Philly and San Diego is that obviously you don't need to win the division. Uh, That was painfully obvious, not just with the Mets, but with the Braves and the Dodgers getting knocked out as quickly as they did. It wasn't just us getting knocked out quickly. The Cardinals, too, if you want to put them in there. Every team with a better record got knocked out. It, It was incredible what happened. That doesn't mean it's going to happen every single season. You would still rather win the division. You would still rather automatically go to the divisional series with game one, two, and five in your building. So it's not the end of the world, but it's still important. Now, how do I manage this if I'm Buck Showalter? I I still am playing the long game like we talked about with the pitchers. I'm still managing for the 162, I think, in September. If you're in a pennant race and you're tight, you go for it. That's what I think it comes down to. I don't think you're necessarily using Edwin Diaz for five-out saves in July. I'm not not saying that, but I think when you're in September, if this is close, the division matters. Last year may not be the rule. It may be the exception. And just because it was the first time we saw this format, the way it was laid out, doesn't mean that that's what's going to happen every single year. So the division still matters. I, I want to win the division personally. If the Mets had won the division last year, would things have been different? Maybe they just lose in the divisional series. I don't know. I can't tell you they do or they don't. I have no idea. Maybe they do better. Max has extra rest. Think about that. If Max Scherzer wasn't healthy and the Mets won the division, they would have had how many extra days before they opened up that divisional series against what turned out to be the Philadelphia Phillies. So, I can't tell you what happens just because the Phillies upset the Braves and the Mets flamed out against the Padres doesn't mean they would have lost to Philadelphia, which is another reason why it's not the end of the world. I'm not saying it is, 
Obviously, you can make the playoffs as a wild card team and go on a run, but I would prefer to win the division. They don't have, and Buck went through this, some of the battles that they have in camp. They really don't have a lot of battles. The Yankees have battles. The Yankees have a third base battle, third base shortstop battle, a left field battle, a fifth starter battle. And obviously, everybody has back of the bullpen. Everybody has 25th guy on a roster, 26th guy on a roster. Buck did put over the bullpen battles and said those spots are as important as Verlander. He did say that. Those spots are as important as a top-line starting pitcher. And he's obviously right. You're going to have seven or eight guys in your bullpen, which is another discussion. How many guys should you have in your bullpen? Um, Who's going to be there? Who's in this bullpen? Zach Britton had a workout today in which he was showing off his arm to everybody out there. I think six teams showed up. The Mets happened to be one of them. I'd bring him in. I think the Met concern right now is handing out another guaranteed contract, another you're on this roster, because there are a lot of options for this bullpen. Buck brought up Trevor Williams and replacing him. He said, that's a big deal. He's right. He's not wrong. Trevor Williams was really good last year. He was really good in spot starts. He was really good coming into a game in the second inning when a guy gets hurt or coming into the game in the third inning when a guy gets his ass kicked. Trevor Williams is a really, really valuable guy. Who is Trevor Williams coming out of spring training? It's not David Peterson to me. Like if David Peterson is not in this rotation and they're not using a six-man rotation, does David Peterson make sense as A, a guy in the bullpen, but a high leverage guy? not somebody who's being treated as a long man. Or does he make more sense in AAA? He's got two more option years left. Uh, By the way, let me explain the option stuff because I know it's confusing. If you have options, so let's say David Peterson has two option years left. Um, There's there's, Steven Nagosik has no options. So Steven Nagosik has to make the team. If he doesn't make the team, he cannot be optioned to the minors. He's placed on waivers. Anybody can claim him. So a guy like Steven Nagosik almost has an inside track on making the team. But David Peterson has two option years left. Uh, Tyler McGill has three. Every single player has five options during the regular season. So when you hear two options, it's option years. Every single player who has options has five options. That's a new rule in baseball that started last year because they don't want guys shuttled up, up and down, up and down, up and down 12 times. Once you're optioned five times, you're out of options. So David Peterson has options. He can go to the minor leagues. I don't like him as a long man. There are two options to me, no pun intended, for David Peterson. High leverage reliever, throw him right in there. I know he didn't look all that good last year doing that. We saw that in the Yankee game. Or he's pitching every fifth day, which is probably the answer, which sucks. Pitching every fifth day, if it's not in the major leagues, it's in the minor leagues. The long man is probably Alizaire Hernandez, the kid they got from Miami. That's probably the guy. Um, Is he as good as Trevor Williams? No, but he's going to have to be. Tyler McGill is another one who's interesting. Because right now, here's the bullpen in terms of locks. Like, these guys are in the bullpen. And for the sake of this, let's say there are eight bullpen spots. Five starters, eight bullpen guys. That gets you to 13 pitchers. Let's just assume they're going to carry 13 pitchers. That's my best guess. You got your five starters. Verlander, Scherzer, Senga, Carrasco, Quintana. Put them to the side. 
Here are the relievers that are on this team, barring injury. Edwin Diaz, David Robertson, Brooks Raleigh, Drew Smith, Adam Adovino. It's five guys. They are locks. They are not being sent down because none of them have options other than Drew Smith. They are on the team, okay? That gives you three spots. That's not a lot. Three spots. Zach Green is the kid they took in the Rule 5 draft from the New York Yankees. If he's not on the Major League roster, he's gone. He goes back to the Yankees. The Yankees have a history of allowing guys to leave via the Rule 5 and then turning out to be awesome. So I'm a little partial to as long as Zach Green looks competent, he's in the bullpen. I just mentioned Nagosik. Now, I'm not telling you Steven Nagosik is freaking Rob Dibble in his prime. I don't know why I used Rob Dibble. Uh, Steven Nagosik is not Dellen Betances in his prime. That one sucks, too. I'm not saying Steven Nagosik is Eric Gagne in his prime, but do you just want to lose him? Do you just want to send him away? Then he's on the team. Then you've got Jeff Brigham, who they got from Miami. Then you've got John Curtis, who they rehabbed last year. Then you've got Steven Ridings, who they claimed off waivers from the Yankees. Then you have the David Peterson, Tyler McGill, Eliasar Hernandez, Joey Lucases of the world. That's a lot of guys for really three spots. That's, that's a battle. That's a battle. That is a battle. And the one guy that sticks out the most to me, and I don't know exactly why, but he rehabbed John Curtis. Yeah. He from, from Miami, if I'm correct, right? Mm-hmm. He he was really good a couple of years ago, if I'm correct, in that role. And I could see him when you have a history of being in that role already, that's why I didn't I love Trevor Williams in that spot. Uh, I'm cool with trying to bring him back again. How is he gonna look rehabbed after being away for a year? It depends. But that's the guy that first sticks out to me that he's already done that. He's been there before. It makes the most sense. What would you do with McGill then? You know, obviously these guys are going to have to show themselves here in spring training and pitch well. But is Tyler McGill a guy you keep in AAA in case there's an injury to be a depth starter? Is he a guy you make a short reliever? Is it a guy you keep as a long reliever? I, I think ultimately you're eventually going to get that six-man rotation. So to have a McGill and a Peterson ready in AAA to be available to step up in a, in a pinch and then eventually join the rotation, especially because realistically, whether it's Carrasco, maybe even Quintana, I, I don't know how how if everyone's going to stay healthy the whole time too. You know that one, yeah. you know that one of these guys are going to come up and pitch ten starts no matter what. Yeah, no, there's no doubt. Like we're going to do at some point on one of the podcasts coming up. I'm going to make a prediction on the exact 26 man roster, and the reason I'm going to get it wrong besides I ain't perfect, is someone's going to get hurt. You know, I'm mentioning all these names. Guys are going to get hurt, and that sucks. And you hope it's not serious, and you hope it's not the top-end guys, but guys are going to get hurt. You know, I mentioned those five locks of Diaz, Robertson, Raleigh, Smith, and Adovino. They got to stay healthy. And by the way, there's a few guys I am forgetting because those guys I just mentioned are all on the 40-man roster. There are non-roster invitees like a TJ McFarlane and a Tommy Hunter. And I bring them up because both guys are Buck guys. Buck loves TJ McFarlane from his Baltimore days. He loves Tommy Hunter. So those names I mentioned, really 11 guys for three spots, there are more. There's Tommy Hunter. There's TJ McFarlane. There's uh, Jimmy Yacobonis. There's William Woods. 
there's a few other guys. Really, to me, it's Hunter and McFarland because they do have that buck connection. So there's gonna be a lot of Met fans, and I'm one of them who say, "Hey, Zach Britton, Zach Britton, Zach Britton." I think a part of why they're hesitant is all those names I just mentioned because they can't keep all of them. And if you sign Zach Britton to a guaranteed contract, that's another guy who's guaranteed. So there's less roster spots that are available. Why do you? Why you seem to? be on um, Nagozik as bringing him back and making him part of it. I obviously understand because of the options and you don't want to, you, you prefer to hold on to him. But if you had a choice, because I feel like that's probably what it's going to be. It's, if you bring in Britain, Nagozik's got to go. Either him or, or, or Green. And that's what sucks, man, because Steven Nagosik, when he pitched last year with the Mets, was pretty good. I mean, he didn't come up here and suck. He wasn't bad the times he was up here. And Everyone else that I mentioned can simply go to AAA. Everyone I mentioned, Stephen Rodings, he can go to AAA. Uh, Joey Lucchese, he can go to AAA. Jeff Brigham, go to AAA. Everybody can go to AAA. So I think what ends up happening, and I totally get why, and I'm kind of on board with it, is the guys who can't go to AAA have a leg up because I lose them. Zach Green and Stephen Nagosik, if they look decent in spring training, now you could trade them. Because there could be another team that says, hey, I want this guy. You could absolutely do that. But they just have the leg up. Because I don't care how well Bryce Montes de Oka pitches, he could always stick his ass in AAA. So it's going to be the way guys pitch. Let's just be perfectly honest. How they pitch and who stays healthy. Can we, but I, can I still we... like the sign Zach Britton. Don't get me wrong. I think adding another lefty to the bullpen would be awesome. Can we hope that whether it's John Curtis, whether it's Nagozik or whatever – Looks so great, they could package him and Darren Ruff to get anybody <laughs> else in the world. I stand by the fact Darren Ruff will not be on the New York Mets at the start of 2023. And we'll get into that position player side of things in a couple of days on the next Rico because that's another topic of discussion. A few other things from Buck. He mentioned that the fourth starter or the fourth outfielder is as important as Ver- – it goes back to the whole as important as Verlander. He really tried to put over the other competitions as, hey, that's pretty important. He also did say that half the team was eating Chipotle the other night, which makes me love this team even more because Chipotle is amazing. Amazing. A couple of other quick things. Number one, the Pocota rankings came out. I don't give a rat's ass. I won't even waste time on Rico Bronia discussing the Pocota. Who cares what they think – Guys are going to do. They're always wrong. The 2021 Mets' Pakoda said 93 wins. Our asses were under 500. So, Bill Pakoda, I loved you. You were the first ever position player to pitch for the New York Mets. Your rankings suck. I know it's not Bill Pakoda. Go ahead. All right. So, my question about the Pakoda rankings is, two days ago, I look and I see Yankees 99 point whatever wins and the Dodgers at like 97 and the Mets 97, whatever it was. And I look today and they've already changed. How are they changing before the season starts? <laughs> it's like the stock market. Yeah. What the hell? Uh, my sources tell me the Met Pakota rankings went down because Darren Ruff has not been cut yet. So <laughs> that, that, that affected things. <laughs> the other piece of news, which is good, is Keith Hernandez re-signed. That's great. Three more years on SNY, so we got the same broadcast crew, yippity doo da. And Adam Adovino, Adam Adovino, Adam Adovino was asked, like everybody else, 
about the pitch clock. And he said he's excited. He can't wait for the pitch clock. I can't wait for the pitch clock. The pitch clock is the one rule in baseball that I am super excited for. All the other rules that are coming, eh, whatever. Okay, the bases are bigger. It's like a pizza box. You know, we, we've gone over it. We've talked about it on the Rico, how we think it's going to impact everybody. But I can't wait for the pitch clock. Adam Adovino said he's so excited about the pitch clock. Pete, remember a few months ago, we did a Rico about the pitch clock, and I had everybody's times written down. Adam Adovino's slow, bro. He's really, really, really slow. And I've got the data to back it up. I came oh, here with boy. receipts. Oh, boy. So, here we go. <laughs> Adam Adovino. Adam Adovino, uh, on average, with the bases empty, it would take him 21 seconds to throw a pitch. The MLB average was 18.1. Well past the average. With guys on base, 23.3. Adam Adovino, almost 24. So Adam Adovino may like the pitch clock, but he is below average. Remember, with guys on base, 20 seconds. With nobody on base, 15 seconds. Each batter only gets one timeout per at-bat. Max Scherzer said something cool, too. He said he's always wanted to work fast and hasn't been able to, and that the pitch clock is going to help him because it also penalizes the hitters, which is another aspect of this thing, that it's not just the pitcher who has to work fast, it's the hitter who's got to get their butt in the batter's box. I'm really not calling out Adam Adovino. I just find it fascinating that guys who work slow are saying this is great. Hopefully it doesn't affect their performance, but Adam Adovino has never been a fast worker, and now he's going to have to be. Everyone's going to have to be because those pitch clocks, that's going to make everyone a fast worker. It That clock is much faster than the average pitcher ever worked by a significant amount. So even the fastest worker is now going to be average based on how you have to cooperate with this pitch clock. And now what's the repercussion if the batter is not ready at, say, 15 or 20 seconds? Do they still get to throw the ball and, uh, hey, if you're not ready, suck it up? No, a strike will be called. So you will be penalized with a strike if you're not in the batter's box with, I think, seven left on the clock, I think is the actual rule. So the batter needs to be in the batter's box, ready to go. Otherwise, the umpire will automatically call a strike. Same thing with the batter. If the batter is not in the windup pitching, they will be called for a ball. I want to warn everybody, and I think this is going to be great. I can't wait to be locked in on it. We're going to do podcast galore over this. <laughs> the early spring training games are going to be a cluster F. Like, it is not going to be smooth. They're also <laughs> using a point of emphasis off on box. And they used Kevin Gaussman as an example in terms of the way he bounces. Mm. So they're going to be calling balks like they're at like balking Bob Davidson came out of retirement just to call balks. So point of emphasis on balks, point of emphasis on illegal pitches, point of emphasis, obviously, on the pitch clock. It exists now. I think the first week of spring training is going to be the Globetrotters. And I'm here for it. Get me my popcorn. Let's go. This may be the most entertaining spring training of all. Yeah. To be fair. Oh, I think it, I think it is. So, so you talk about Kevin Gossman, but what about was it Framber Valdez, Luis it, Garcia, Luis Garcia? Excuse me. Yeah. Nestor Cortez. Yeah. 
And then who was the guy who walked three times or four times? Ah, uh, the lefty on the Marlins. Oh my god! Oh jeez, yeah, I forget. But yeah, I know. It, it, it's going to affect a lot of guys. But I think what we forget, and I really do think it's going to be okay. Guys Blyler. make adjustments. Blyer, yes, Richard Blyer. Blyer. Good call. Yeah, guys make adjustments. Hey, you know, Luis Garcia is going to figure it out. Kevin Gausman is going to figure it out. Doesn't mean there won't be calls early in the season. I just think early in spring training, and if Keith Hernandez is down there, Keith, take a deep breath. It's just spring training. Let's not freak out when, <laughs> when things make no sense. <laughs> it's spring training for all of us. So I think I'm more excited for spring training this year because I want to see how all this crap is instituted. I do think by the time we get to opening day, it's going to be fine. So I don't know how much of our audience is going to be glued in on spring training. I assume that most people who download the Rico were diehard fans. So you're probably watching a lot of these games, the ones that are televised. We'll see it. But I think those that are more casual, maybe you're listening to get an update. You're not going to watch these spring training games. I think by the time we get to opening day, it's not going to be that crazy in terms of enforcement. But it's going to speed up the game. And I think that's awesome. I think that's great. I know we've got to get to 86 soon. We haven't touched 86. But the one thing that someone emailed a while back about the bases being yeah. 90. So you made a point that you you think that um, it's going to be the small ball is going to come into play more and the, that, that maybe a guy, an infield hit, they're going to beat out infield hits yeah. more. It's still not like they did the measurement. It's still 90 feet. So the bases are wider. Does it not affect the defense a little bit more too? Where like, say for example, a Freddie Freeman can reach out more. And, and, and is it, is, is that going to, do you, do you think it's going to be affected on both sides of things too? That's interesting. Yeah, I guess you're right. When you're as a first baseman, you're stretch, you could stretch a little bit more. Maybe it evens itself out. I don't know. It's one of those things where we got to watch. We got to see, is it going to add more stolen bases? Is it going to add more infield hits? Is it going to help that cheating first baseman who's able to kind of slide off the bag quicker? I don't know. I don't know. It, the fact that all of this is happening at the same time, all these rule changes are occurring at the same time. It, it, there's so much new information. There's so much new. How's this going to work? How's that going to work? I personally find myself more enthralled by the pitch clock because I think it's going to impact the game in a major way. I, in a major way, like I love baseball. It's my favorite sport. I score a ton of games. The games have less action today than they did 20 years ago because pitchers work slower. That's a big part of it. And I do think that changing that and making everything move quicker is just a better product. I'm really excited about that. Dude, Joe McEwing would strike out without ever seeing a pitch. Yes. You know what I mean? I mean, that's just, <laughs> that's just the reality of the situation. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. All right, so we did our rewatch last week. But one quick thing about the rewatch, and I think I mentioned this on the pod last week, but it's worth saying again, because I just made a comment about the pace of play being major. The other great difference is bat on ball, and we saw it in that game, and we did talk about that. Guys just made more contact, so there's less action because there's more swing and misses. There's more strikeouts as compared to a ground ball to second base or a fly ball to right field. So I don't think the shift necessarily is going to change that. That's going to continue to be a thing. Maybe not a problem, but a thing. But there will be quicker action and more action. Got a lot of emails about our rewatch and thoughts about the game. Clayton Caldwell brought up a great point. He said that he read Ron Darling's New York Times bestseller, in which he wrote 
a book called Game 7, 1986, Failure and Triumph in the Biggest Game of My Life. And in the book, he talks about that malfunction of the fence and said he was pissed off, according to Clayton. I haven't read the book. I should. That's on me. I'll get to it at some point. He spoke about how pissed off he was and did say it was a big factor in his mind as he gave up the home run to Rich Gedman. <laughs> Gedman and he had a ton of history because they grew up together, so it bothered him even more. <laughs> that is really cool. I forgot that Ron wrote that book. He wrote a book all about Game 7 of the 86 World Series. So that may be required reading for all of us. Uh, also, Clayton writes, Darling was pulled. The timing was odd to me because Davey let Ronnie hit in the bottom of the third. I would have hit for him there, especially with arrested Sid and Doc available. Hurst was dealing, and you're already down three. Interesting. Something else I found intriguing. Vin Scully mentioned this numerous times, but Roger McDowell, the second spitter, pitched in five of seven games in the World Series. No way that happens today. I found that fascinating. Maybe he ran out of gas late in game seven, speaking of that Red Sox rally. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, he was pitching a lot. There was a rainout between game six and game seven. So just keep that in mind. As far as letting Darling hit in the third is concerned, let me look back at this because I got my scorecard out. It's 3 nothing. He just gave up those back-to-back home runs and the RBI single to Boggs. There's one out, nobody on in the third. He lets him hit. I think, you know what I think that is? And you're right. This day and age, he's out of the game. This day and age, he may have been pulled after he gave up the hit base hit to Wade Boggs in the second inning. I think in that day and age, Davey's thinking, I want to get more innings out of him. I'm not taking him out after two innings because if you or three innings. No, it would have been two innings because he actually, well, he was batting in the third inning. So, yeah, it was after three innings, and he only got those two outs before he pulled him. Yeah, I guess he was just trying to squeeze another inning out of him. It's a fair point. Definitely is. Ken Ross writes about the woman behind home plate that we talked about with the hat. I always used to call her the lady with the hat, and she used to make those uh, hand gyrations that try to distract the Red Sox. Basically traveling calls. There you go. Like a traveling (laughs) call. Very good. Guys, her name was Bo, a fan of fans. Med earrings, the hat, often heard yelling at the top of her lungs, encouraging the player at the plate. And he gave an example. Carry on! Mark Carrion. Who could forget? Mark Carrion. You know what's crazy about it? You know what I think of when I think of Mark Carrion? Outfielder. Batted righty, hit lefty. No, I'm sorry. Hit le- batted righty, threw lefty. There you go. Yes. The Ricky Henderson, as we like to call it. Uh, this is from Nicole. Nicole writes, love the Rico, 33-year-old diehard fan, also waiting for my first World Series win. So I enjoyed living vicariously through those around in 86 to see it. A couple of thoughts. We all feel the same way, by the way. We all were living vicariously through watching Game 7. You mentioned a lot of things I also took away from the game having watched it for the first time. The home run sandwich wall collapse, Santana's inability to feel that tailored made ground ball double play, the unexpected Jesse Orozco RBI. But you also discussed how you didn't believe your dad And this, by the way, is a huge conversation in the email. So she's the first one to reference it. There'll be a lot more talk about my dad, who may have to come on a Rico very soon to explain himself. Uh, You discussed how you didn't believe your dad when he said he was confident the Mets would win the whole time. It made me think of the pessimism of fans in general now versus then. 
It's almost as if fans were still golden then, not yet knocked down by endless terrible losses and seasons. I noticed during the game the crowd never seemed to lose the optimism, even down three runs in Game 7 of the World Series. You mentioned how you were nervous. I was too. But right after Darling gave up the second homer, there are let's go Mets chants in the crowd. No one was booing Darling when he walked off the mound. There wasn't that you could hear a pin drop feeling, at least on TV at any point, because of the early run deficit. All of this is to say when I was watching, I thought to myself, wow, somehow this crowd knew the Mets were going to win. So it was interesting to me when you mentioned your dad's thinking in the stands. This then led me to think, would you consider having your dad on the Rico? Of course I would have had my dad on the Rico. My dad came on the Evan Roberts podcast talking about Bruno Sammartino after he died. So yes, he could come on. I think his Met memories and perspective would be a real nice treat to listen to. I completely agree. I do think that Nicole brings up some incredibly, incredibly excellent points that I don't think I thought about while rewatching it. But now that she mentions it, it's so true. There was an optimism in that ballpark that doesn't match the negativity of today. So my dad probably wasn't full of bleep when he said to me, we knew we were going to win because the sound of that crowd felt like everybody thought the same thing. So I get it. I kind of get it. I'm starting to believe him. Can can I give you a WWE reference? Of course. So back in the day, you'd watch a fight. And then, all you know, Andre the Giants beating the crap out of Hulk Hogan. Ultimate Wars beating the crap out of Hulk Hogan. Whatever the case is. And the fans are kind of whatever. And all of a sudden, Hulk Hogan's doing that, like, you know, thing where he's getting hit in the back of the head. And Hulk he's still, up. Hulk up, Pete. Yeah. And, and the crowd's going crazy. And that could be at any point in the match. And whether they win, they lose, whatever the case is, the, the crowd the crowd is there in every single moment. And that's kind of what she's re- Nicole's referencing is that was the feel. It didn't make a difference. The crowd was in every moment. It was entertainment, but the belief was there that you could have that Hulk moment at any time. Yeah, and I, she's right. And I, there's more of this, so I don't want to just steal it from her and others that we just weren't jaded back then. The Met fan wasn't a beaten up bunch. I mean, 1973 was 13 years earlier. It's not 30 years earlier. That's when they were in the World Series last, 1969. Like, if you think about the time frame, I put this in perspective. 1986, completely different team than the 73 team. They went through some tough times, but they rebuilt and they're a championship team within 13 years of their last pennant winner. 13 years ago for us in 2023 is 2010, which it's a while ago, but it ain't forever ago. So maybe the Met fan, other than, yeah, they traded Seaver. Yeah, they had some horrible years in the late 70s and early 80s, but they didn't really have as many heartbreaks as we had. You know, losing the division in 85, it was a heartbreak, but it was also a great pennant raise. I think people were just thrilled that they were back. The Mets were back. So maybe it was just a fan base. We're the same, but we weren't the same. We weren't as jaded as we are today, which is kind of what William Slootmaker gets to. The subject of his email is, your dad was not full of bleep. (laughs) Evan, you need to apologize to your dad. There was a time in our lives, though long ago, when we as Met fans were not nattering nibobs of negativism. Negativism. Negativism? Yeah. And there was... 
that time in 1986. We did believe we would come back. And I, as a 16-year-old high school junior at the time, can relate for a few reasons. Number one, Davey Johnson had told us that all the Mets would dominate in 86, and they did. He did say that before the season. I saw that in the highlight video I watched as a kid. We witnessed many dramatic comebacks throughout that season. In the playoffs, the Mets had continuously come back. I was at game three against the Astros when they were down 4 nothing, being dominated by Bob Nepper, and they came back. Game six against the Astros. Again, ninth inning, amazing comeback. He's absolutely right. Number three, against the Red Sox, down 0-2 in the series, losing both games at Shea. Came back. Game six, we all know what happened. We had experienced great comebacks time and time again. Plus, the Red Sox bullpen sucked. The Mets had guts. We weren't afraid at 3 nothing. We were tough and pretty much maintained that set of brass ones until Terry Pendleton and Mike Sosha did us in. <laughs> I give my dad this about the Terry Pendleton home run, and he gave this to me. I still have it to this day. Uh, the Mets were in a pennant race with the Cardinals. The Mets, I think, were about to get within a half game of first place in 1987 okay and you can fact check me on this and they're about to win and terry pendleton hits a dramatic dramatic home run and it basically ended the mets chances of coming back and winning the division and making the playoffs my dad stood up because there were two strikes on terry pendleton or they were down to their final out whatever it was and when terry pendleton hit that home run he declared from that day forward He would never, ever, ever, ever stand up (laughs) when the team was one out away from winning. So here we go. The Mets got within a game and a half of first place. They're playing the Cardinals on Friday, September 11th, obviously far before. September 11th, 1987. The Mets are about to pull within a half game of first place in the National League East. They are leading the game by a score of four to one. All right. There are two outs and a runner on second, four to one. Willie McGee singles, four to two. Terry Pendleton, home run deep center field, tie game. So didn't win the game, tie game. And then finally, in the top of the 10th inning, they won it, finally, I got an inning later, they won it on a Tommy Herr RBI single. And the Cardinals beat the Mets, and that was it. So my dad never stood up to cheer when they were one out away from winning ever again after the Terry Pendleton comeback. So that is actually a very famous game, not only in Met history, but I certainly learned about it very young as a kid. And so I don't stand up with two strikes. Never do. I don't do it. So it's all my dad's fault. I blame him. The, or I appreciate you, him. You need to change the karma. That's how things are going to change for the Mets. By doing what? By standing up and stand, clapping? Stand up. And we're gonna win the freaking World Series. That's that's, that's gonna change. I'm telling you, start that's, doing it. All right, that's not gonna happen. Doug Brunswick writes, "Hey Evan, one <laughs> thing you didn't touch on, and I had to look this up immediately, was what Ray Knight said to Daryl Strawberry after he crossed home plate after the home run. I forgot about how pissed off Daryl was at Davy Johnson for the double switch in Game Six. I have heard about that. Anyway, a couple of articles of the time. So yeah, it was basically an article how." When Daryl hit the home run that put the game away in the eighth inning, if you look back on it, Ray Knight 
is talking to Strawberry for a few seconds at home plate. And basically, Ray Knight tells him, don't celebrate too much. Go back in that dugout like we've been here before. I thought that was fascinating. So good stuff that Ray Knight is a veteran leader of the team was kind of talking Daryl into, hey, calm down. This is great. Relax. I have a question about Ray Knight. One thing I noticed at the end of the, you know, they win the World Series, everyone's celebrating. Did you notice that Knight and Santana look at each other and Knight kind of just like shoves him away <laughs> and goes to the next guy? That was the one that stuck out. I'm like, you didn't even like hug him. You're hugging, like going to Carter and everyone else hugging each other. And like Knight and Santana look at each other and he kind of just pushes him and runs away. So and that's why sure. Ray Knight was gone at the end of the season. He's like, I'm done. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I think it's one of those things I have to look back on. And watch it again. I may have to watch Game 7 of the World Series again. It was a lot of positive feedback to the rewatch. It, it does seem like something people enjoyed. Maybe it's something we could do one more time before the start of the season, I guess. Should we mix in a loss, though? Should we get negative? I mean, though, negative sells in this business. So I feel like that's that's a heartbreaker would be amazing. The Mike Schultz game. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I was thinking about that. And I'll, t- I'll tell you the reason why. I noticed from the emails and from tweets that you had a really good mix of people who never saw the game, who said, hey, I'm living vicariously through the 86 Mets. I'm too young. And I've always said, if you're under the age of 40, you don't remember it. So that's a a pretty big part of our audience. And then there were a lot of people who do remember it. Guys and gals in their 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s who listen to the pod who are like, hey, it's been a long time. Let me rewatch it. It's why I don't know if a game from even this century makes a lot of sense because is it too soon in a way? I don't know. So maybe it is the, maybe the Mike Sosha game, it really is the answer Pete, because it's one of the most brutal losses in the history of the franchise. And again, not something we remember. So we can relate to it because we'll say, Oh, (laughs) I get it now for those who witnessed it. It may be tougher to rewatch. Because it's like asking us to rewatch Game 7, Mets Cardinals 06. But we'll give it some thought. We'll certainly take your emails if you have any suggestions at B at gmail.com. On the next Rico, we will take a closer look at the position player portion of this roster and what jobs are on the line. And I also mentioned we'll take a closer look at the schedule. It is a brand new schedule. It's very different than anything we've ever seen in the history of Major League Baseball. So we look at the differences and also the strengths of the schedule, uh, division rivals, rivalry series. We'll break down every aspect of the 162 that's set up for the Mets, as obviously we creep closer and closer and closer to opening day. Again, you can email the pod, whether it's about a rewatch or anything else, to ricob at gmail.com. We do appreciate you listening and downloading. Pete's with Tiki and Tierney on middays. I'm with Craig when he decides to work on Monday through Friday at 2 o'clock. Thank you for listening and downloading. And maybe getting mad at Rico Bronya. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.